uh, we get ready to share. God, thank you for Tom, and thank you for the way you made him, the way you've guided him, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would fill him afresh, that his identity um, would come out right now, and that um, his identity in you, that his, uh, his, word, his words would be your words, that the meditations of his heart would be pleasing to you, God, and that, that as um, he speaks, that uh, your, your spirit would go ahead of him and would prepare our hearts to receive your word. Thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, there it's working. <laughs> when Dwight was up here, he said, you know, he's talking about his neighborhood party. God can orchestrate anything. Well, that's on a, like an individual level in a neighborhood. God can orchestrate things even worldwide, history-wide. Um, so, in a sense, what he said fits my sermon today. Because I actually want to talk about two things, but one of them is going to be about 95% of it. How God orchestrated something in history that is unbelievable. So the title of my message could be, God can do anything, even in history. So, um, you know, this is something that was a Kairos moment for me in a sense that probably 10, 15 years ago this began to, like... I began to hear things and read things, and I went, wow, I wasn't even thinking about that. And so uh, another sort of a subtitle of this would be, I think a lot of times we're living in some amazing time in history. The last 70 or 75 years, there's incredible stuff happening in the world, but I think a lot of times it goes right over our heads. I mean, we're not connecting what we're hearing in the news or reading in the news, we're not connecting it to the Bible. We're not connecting the dots. Well, I'm going to help you connect some dots this morning, okay? Um, you know, the Bible is a lot of things, but mostly it's a story. And, you know, the, the first 10, 11 chapters deal with, um, you know, God creates the world, Garden of Eden, he makes man, man falls into sin, and the whole thing is broken. And then there's these promises that he's going to fix it someday. Then the next story is the sin gets so bad that he destroys everybody with a flood. And then after the flood, everybody wants to hang out together. They build this tower. We're all going to live right here. And God says no. So he confounds their language. And then the story begins. Um, Pete, can you put that first slide up there? This is found in Genesis chapter 12. Um, God calls a man by the name of Abraham. He was called Abram at first. And he says to him, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I'm going to show you and I will make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham leaves where he's living and travels to the east to live in a different land. You probably know that story. Um, but what happens is that he's going to have like this great nation come from him. He's going to have like as many descendants as the stars in the sky. He doesn't have any kids. 
So he keeps saying to God, God, this can't happen. I mean, I'm, I'm almost 100. <laughs> this, what are, I don't understand this, God. And then God has to repeat it again. So if you go in Genesis 15 and then again in 18, it's the same thing, and he adds to it. This land I'm going to give you, this is not for a couple of years. This is eternal land I'm giving you for your people. And I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to do amazing things through your seed. And he still doesn't have any children. You know the story. And finally, he was 100 years old. He has Isaac. So that begins the story, and that leads us into the story of what's called the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now they have a lot of kids, because Jacob has lots of wives, so he has a whole bunch of kids. And then one of them, the older brothers, fell into slavery. You know the story of Joseph? And because of that amazing story, the family's saved because they get to go to Egypt where there's food, and their brother, who they sold into slavery, is like the second in command in all of Egypt. And they live in the Nile Delta. Now, I'm a history guy, so I used to teach Egypt. If you look, see, Egypt would be a desert if it weren't for the Nile. Because most of North Africa would be a desert if there's not some water. Well, they have this, this river that flows from way down, like in Kenya, all the way through up into the Mediterranean, right through Egypt. And the Pharaoh gives Joseph and his family the choicest piece of land in the Nile Delta. I mean, if you study it, it's like the best piece of land. So when you open Exodus, it starts to talk about how there's a Pharaoh who comes to the throne who doesn't know about Joseph. And sometimes we think, they spend 400 years in slavery. How terrible. No, 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 no. That's the last hundred years, maybe. It doesn't make it clear. But most of those 400 years, they prospered. They grew into a great nation, like maybe two or three million people. I mean, they were so big and prosperous that the Pharaoh of Egypt is going, who are these people? And then he begins to enslave them. And then you know what happens, the exodus. So God delivers them from Egypt. And it takes 40 days to get from there to the promised land. But they're like us. They don't always do what God wants. And so they are fearful and doubting. So 40 days turns into 40 years in the wilderness. But eventually they enter into the promised land. That, it's tough to put things together in history how far, that was a long ways back. But it's probably about 1700 BC that the Israelites get the land that God has said to Abraham, this is your land forever and ever and ever. They move back into the land. And they live there a good thousand years. You probably know all those stories. They're told in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. But the Israelites, again, are like us. They mess up a lot. So finally, when it gets really bad, they're worshiping other gods. I mean, they're like far from God. He says, okay, you're going to go into, you're going to go into captivity. And they're conquered by the Babylonians. Now, this is the southern kingdom. I know about the northern kingdom, but we'll just take the southern kingdom. And they go to Babylon, which is about 300 miles away. 
And they stay there for 70 years. It's all prophesied. Ever read Jeremiah 29? Sometimes we read Jeremiah 29 and there's that verse in there that people claim for themselves. I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper you, you know, and all that. He's saying that to the Israelites. You're going to go into captivity for 70 years, but then you're going to come back. Like clockwork. The Babylonians are conquered by the Persians. Now, the Persians, historically, were nastier people than the Babylonians. But yet they come, and they decide that they want to let all the Jews go back home. Because they're starting to call them Jews now, because they're from the southern kingdom, Judah. So first Cyrus, then his son Darius, then his grandson Xerxes, and his great-grandsons Artaxerxes all issued decrees. So at the end of the Old Testament, the decree is out that the Jewish people can go home and they start trickling back, trickling back, trickling back. That's the end of the Old Testament. And then the Old Testament closes, and we open up the New Testament, and it's 400 years later. And they're living back in the land that Abraham had given them. And so now we study about how the fact that these people who are now called Jews, and Jesus is born into this culture of people who are Jewish. I have a book here that my granddaughter gave me written by Lois de Verberg, and it says, walking in the dust of Rabbi Jesus. See, he was a Jewish rabbi. There's other books sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus, or you can go with Ray Vanderlaan. Maybe some of you have gone with Ray Vanderlaan to the Holy Land, and you study about the Jewishness, because to understand the four Gospels, you have to understand that Jesus was a Jew, his mother was a Jew, his earthly father was a Jew, his disciples were all Jews, they're all Jews. In fact, in the Gospels, 99% of the people are Jews. It's all about the Jews. Because they're descendants of Abraham. Remember the promises that God made to Abraham? And they're living back in the land. Although the only thing is, now they're, they don't own the land. The, you know, the, the Persians are in control, but they let, them, they let them go back to their holy land, back to their old land. So in the New Testament, the focus is on the fact that they're Jewish. And then Jesus enters in, the promised Messiah. And you know what happens. It doesn't go real well. And I'm going to jump ahead right now and tell you a story that takes place in the 1900s. This is at the end of World War I. It was called the Great War. Because they didn't know there would be a World War II, so they called World War I the Great War. And it was a terrible war. It involved dozens of countries. And there were two sides pitted. The German Empire against the Western allies of Britain and France and all their allies. And it was a terrible war. Thousands and thousands died. And at the end of the war, the United States comes into the war, sort of tips the scale, and the allies win. So in 1918, a British general rides into Jerusalem. I think he was on horseback. And he's thinking to him, he was a Christian. This is a really significant thing. Because nobody from the West or nobody who was Christian had been in this city for a long, 
long time. Well, why is that? Well, let me go back now to the time of Jesus. I would like to, um, not all my slides got printed off, but in the book of Romans, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. It's about 58 AD. Paul's the great missionary to the Gentiles. You go like, what's a Gentile? Well, we're Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So the, the church has pushed into the Gentile world, but Paul is in agony. And if you read, I'd like you to go home this week and wrote, read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Because he's like writing the book to the Roman church, and all of a sudden, he starts down a rabbit trail of agony. Because here's what's happening. Paul is the missionary to the Gentiles, but the Jews are deserting Jesus wholesale. The second generation of Jews are deserting their Messiah. And Paul, who's this amazing Christian, is in such agony. Let me read you what he reads, what he wrote. In, in, this is Romans 9, 2 and 3. I have great sorrow and continual anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed from my Messiah for my brothers, my kinsmen, my race. He's basically saying, I'm, I'm willing to go to hell if I could save my own people. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. The gospel continues to push into the Gentile world, first the Greek world, then the Latin world, but the Jews fall away. Remember, when you don't do what God wants, he often punishes. What Paul doesn't know is 10 years after he writes this in Romans, the Jews will rebel against the Romans, and God will punish them terribly. If you go to Romans 11, I'm just going to pick this up a minute. Paul addresses this issue. If the church is becoming all Gentiles and is not Jewish, what's going on? Abraham was the father of believers. The land was given to him. The Jewish people live in this land. And the Gentiles are accepting Christ in droves. And the Jews are falling away. What's going on? So he uses an analogy in Romans 11. He says, the Jews are like, he uses a tree. There's a lot of olive trees in the whole land. He says, we're like the olive tree that represents the kingdom of God. We're even the roots but the Gentiles are like a grafted-in branch. And you know how you can graft a branch into a tree? The Gentiles are grafted into the kingdom. But he goes on to say, and this is one of my slides, so I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase it. He goes on to say, but that doesn't mean God's going to forget my people, the Jewish people. He will not forget them because they're the original kingdom of God the roots, the main tree are the Jewish people. So someday, someday, but as I said to you a couple minutes ago, he doesn't know 10 years later. When the Jews rebel against the Romans, 
the Romans finally, after a long time, the Jews held, they really hold on a long time. They keep the Roman army at bay for a year and a half. The Romans can't get in. But when they do, they go on a rampage. And they're so mad, they destroy the city, they destroy the temple, they tear down everything, and they kill the Jews, they enslave them, and they decide as a people that they're going to make all the Jewish people into slaves. In fact, when Titus, the general, gets back to Rome, and he violated every protocol of a general, when you conquer a city, you have to control your troops. They just can't go in there and kill and rape and rant. The Roman Senate gives them a, a recommendation and an honor because they all hate the Jews. So from that point on, Rome makes Jewish people like their biggest enemy. Track them down, kill them, put them into slavery. So what happens if you're a Jew? You flee. This is nothing like Babylon. This is a hundred times worse. They flee all over into Europe, Eastern Europe, Africa. The Jews for the next couple hundred years are just fleeing because they know if the Romans get their hands on them, they're dead. That's a terrible, terrible thing. Well, let me go on with my story. I said to you that the church becomes a Gentile church. Um, it pushes into the Roman Empire. Eventually, the entire Roman Empire becomes Christian. Uh, Constantine, the Roman emperor in 313 AD, makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. There's another emperor afterward, and he takes it a step further. So they're like saying, we're a Christian empire. Can you imagine that? Rome? The last 150 years, they declare Christianity is their religion. But Rome also, at the same time, is collapsing. It's falling apart. It's dying. I mean, if you're a historian, you realize the Rome, the last 150 years, 200 years, is hanging by a thread because there's people, there are enemies all around Rome trying to break through, and they finally collapse in the 400s. Here we go. God's at work. Another group of people come on the scene. Islam, Muhammad. Muhammad lives from 570 to 632. In the last 15 years of his life, all they do is conquer, 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 conquer. The Roman Empire is gone. Nothing can stop them. They conquer the Holy Land. So from that point on in history, the Holy Land belongs to the Muslims. Well, what are the dominant group in the Muslims? Arabs. Who's the father of the Arabs? Anybody know? Ishmael, the other son of Abraham. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Abraham's other son now takes over the Holy Land. And they live there for the next 1,300 years. And I told you the story of Allenby marching into the city of Jerusalem and going, whoa, this has been in the hands of the Muslim world for 1,300 years. 
Let me go on with that story. So after World War I is over, the British control the Holy Land because it was conquered during World War II or World War I. So during the 20s and the 30s, Britain is controlling the Holy Land. And there was a time in the 20s that there was a guy like a Secretary of State of Britain who issues a decree saying, I think we should give a little piece of land to the Jews. But nobody steps up on that, because that would be like starting World War III. You know, nothing ever happens. So now we move into the time of Hitler. How is God going to do this? There's Jews all over, you know, they're, they're in Eastern Europe, they're even in parts of Asia. There's Jews in all over Western Europe and Africa. How, and how would he ever get the Jews back in their homeland? That's impossible. Nothing is impossible with God, nothing. So you know what Hitler does to the Jews. He rounds them up from all over Western Europe, Eastern Europe. He's going to kill them all. Well, he doesn't kill them all. Six million in the Holocaust. But there's a purpose. Because when World War II is over, there are so many displaced Jews, they don't know what to do. Their homes are gone, their families are gone. I mean, young men who don't know where their father and mother and brothers and sisters are, or a husband who doesn't know where his wife is. Well, there was a movement among the Jews in the late 1800s called Zionism, which was, we need to return to the land. Well, it didn't amount to much. But with all these displaced Jews, thousands of them, they go like, where are we going to go? There's no place to go. Our home is gone, our families are gone. Let's go to the Holy Land. So in 1946 and 47, there's a migration of Jews all over heading for the Holy Land. Thousands of them to get there, and the English are, are still in charge. And they're going, we want that piece of land you were going to give us. And the British go, no, 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 no. <laughs> We'd start World War III now. So now Britain and the Jews are like this. They're button heads. Finally, the, Jew, the, the English say, we're getting out. We're getting out. We, 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 this is not our fight. So they announced in 1948, we're leaving. And whatever happens, happens, but we're pulling out. So the Jews are in a quandary. There's thousands of them in the Holy Land now. But it's not their land. So Britain says to them, look, we'll back you if you can find one other country that will back you. Or two or three other countries. You gotta know the history of the United States. We had one president who served four terms, Franklin Roosevelt. He's elected for four terms, but he dies early in his fourth term. And he is a different vice president. Very strange. If you study the, the Democratic convention that took place, this guy that nobody knows about, Harry Truman, becomes the vice president. Oh, well, he's the vice president, he'll never do anything. Roosevelt dies. Harry Truman becomes the president. So who's the president after World War II? Harry Truman. So the Jews go to Washington, D.C. with a delegation and say, will you sign this, recognizing that we can have our own piece of land? He signs it. Because he 
was a Christian as a young man too. And he remembers all this stuff. He signs it. So in 1948, the Jewish people have their land back. A little piece of it, about the size of Zealand, but a little piece of land. If you would have said to anybody 100 years earlier or 200 years earlier or 300 years, you think the Jews could ever get their land back? Not a chance. Not a, not a chance at a million. But God can do anything. Well, what happens after that? Well, the Arab world is incensed. So they keep attacking them. There's wars every other year. You know in the Old Testament how the Israelites would have these battles, they'd be outnumbered 10 to 1 and they'd win? That's what happens. The Jews win every single battle. And every time they win, they get more land, more land, more land. Until finally they get it almost all back. So that's why today there's a state of Israel. Because they get all their land back. And now they're a prosperous nation. And they're back in their homeland. An impossibility. But that's not the end of the story. Because if you look at the prophecies, there was one that I wanted to read you and I skipped over it. Let me just get it to it in a minute. Because remember I said to you that, that Jews were scattered all over the world because they ran from the Romans? There's dozens of these in the Old Testament and some in the New Testament. Listen to this. Ezekiel 34, 11 and 12. For thus says the Lord God, I even I will search for my lost sheep, and I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that is among the sheep that are scattered. So I will seek out my sheep, and I will deliver them out of the places where they have scattered in a cloudy and a dark day. It's all prophesied in the Bible that they're going to come back. God's going to seek out his people. And he did. And today, there's about 9 million Jews living in Israel that came from all over the planet. Prophesied. But that's not the end of the story. Because if they don't come to Messiah, what's the point? They are. There are over a thousand Messianic Jewish congregations in the United States today. Because there's two places in the world Jews live. Israel and the United States. Jewish rabbis are starting to dominate the landscape in America. They're writing books. They have TV programs. There is definitely a revival in America. In fact, in 2018, they did a survey among Jewish millennials in America, and four out of ten said they believed Jesus was the Messiah for the Jews, the Jewish Messiah. So they're coming to the Lord. In Israel, it's a little bit tougher. Because in Israel, you know, they're all together, but definitely every single day, every single day, there's Jews coming to the Lord. It's just a bigger struggle. Listen to this in Zechariah 12:10. And I will pour out in the house of David and over those dwelling in Jerusalem a spirit of favor and supplication so that they will look to me whom they have pierced. So this has to take place after the time of Jesus. And they will mourn over him as one mourns over an only child and weeps bitterly over him as a firstborn. The day will come, and I think soon, when in the land of Israel there will be a week or a month or a year of mourning because of what they did to the Messiah. Because as Jews come into the kingdom... Now you've got the olive tree, the original kingdom, Abraham's seed, and the Gentiles merging into one. 
There's an interesting verse that Jewish people read and, and recite a lot. In Ephesians chapter 2, 14 and 15, and again, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it says there, what God's going to do is take the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians and make them into one new man. And Jewish people use this expression. Well, Protestants who, who are like Gentiles don't even know about this. But Jewish people quote this a lot. One new man. Not Jew, not Gentile, Christian. And it's happening today in Israel. Now that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about. The impossible thing, that the Jews would get their land back and that they would come to the Lord. But the second thing is that there are many, many verses in the Bible, including the Great Commission. You know, go in all the world, preach the gospel, all the world, teach them, baptize them. Well, if you look at what's happened in evangelism up until, let's say, 50, 70 years ago, Christianity started in the Holy Land, spread to Europe, went to America, South America, Africa, but not Asia. Not Asia. But Asia is where about 63% of the world's population lives. So the Lord can't come back when 63% of the world's population is Asia and they're all like Buddhists and Hindu and Muslims and other things. Well, guess what? Again, in the last 70 years, there have been huge breakthroughs. I don't think there's a country hardly in Asia that isn't coming to the Lord. I don't mean, you know, revivals of 60% of the people, but I'm talking about big breakthroughs. In just this past couple of weeks, I've heard a fellow named Pastor Kuku, who's from India, and he and his brother and his father go all over India preaching, and every time they do it, they risk their life because there's a... India now has an anti-conversion law. If you win any people to Jesus, they can put you in prison. But it doesn't stop them. Indian people are coming to the Lord in huge droves. I got a brother-in-law in Nepal. He's like the Apostle Paul. He goes there, he wins some converts, and then he sends them out two by two to the villages. And every time he leaves his wife, who's my wife's sister, he doesn't know if he's coming back. But he sends these people out two by two, and they're making huge strides. Every village, they have great success. Christianity is pushing into Asia big time. So, if the two big things that have to happen before the Lord comes back, number one, the Jews have to get their land back and have to come to the Lord, and two, the gospel has to spread all over the world, man, we're getting close. So the reason I preach this, I think a lot of times we're not even aware of this. I was alive in 1948 when the Jewish state was established. I never heard a word. Not one word in Sunday school, catechism, Christian, not one word. Holy smokes, that was big. Because I think a lot of times, oops, I'm getting hooked here. A lot of times we just are not connecting the dots. So what I'm going to ask you to do is going forward, when you read the news, when you hear the news, when you listen to the, the news, remember the kingdom of God is on the march. And there's two things that are happening every day. 
Christianity is, is spreading like wildfire to the ends of the earth. And two, the Jewish people are coming to the Lord. And when those two things happen a little bit more, the Lord comes back. The early church used to say, Maranatha, Lord, Maranatha. I meant, Lord, come quickly. We're 2,000 years later. I think we should be saying it today. Maranatha, Lord, Maranatha. We're getting close. The Jewish people are coming to the Lord, and Asia is becoming Christian. And when those two things happen, the sky is going to rend, and we're going to hear the archangel cry and the trumpet blow. So I hope that that's encouragement for you, because really, this is happening in our lifetime. we got to connect the dots. Things are happening. Amen. <laughs> I'm going to finish with a prayer. Lord, I just thank you for all the amazing things that are happening in the world today. And Lord, we can read about it in the news. It's out there. It's available. I pray that you will help us to, number one, begin to sense what's going on and connect the dots and realize that your kingdom is on the move. And number two, it will encourage us to even live more devoted, dedicated lives to you. Because, Lord, you're the King of kings, you're the Lord of lords, and everything is about you. So, Lord God, help us as we go forward that we can learn to connect the dots and we can understand what you're doing. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.